This is Mary Celeste Bell. Welcome to the Blackberry Podcast, where we'll dive into stories and knowledge of the incredible people that are part of the Blackberry story. You'll hear from longtime friends, amazing visiting personalities, and our own inspired team members. In the final installment of our 2019 program series, Robbie Ventura sat down with Tyler Farrar and Mari Holden. Both just recently out of the competition realm, it was exciting to welcome Farrar and Holden to the farm. Hear what they thought of the event and what resonated with them during the rides. Let's talk to Mari and Tyler. So just to give you guys a little bit of background, I know I talked about it yesterday, but we have two unbelievable athletes in front of you um, that excel in two very different disciplines. Uh, Mari was a six-time national champion, um, five of those in the time trial, one of those on the road. And I want you to tell them a little bit about what a time trial is all about. But she also won the world championships in 2000 and got a silver medal in the Olympics um, in 2000 as well. So the absolute top of the sport as it relates to uh, um, time trialing as well as road racing. The nice thing about, uh, about her transition is, is she's become a super important person in female cycling. She's really helping to, to grow the sport overall. She was the director sportif of the Show Air 2020 team. And I don't know if you guys recently have seen anything as it relates to women's cycling in this country, but they won every single stage, every jersey. It's like the most dominant performance of a female team ever, which is like, I know beyond anything. It was pretty unbelievable, ever, actually. Totally. I mean. <laughs> and, and because of that, I mean, not because of that, but all of her accomplishments, she's been named the um, head of women's cycling development and national uh, team yeah, coach USA, yep. which US, for USA Cycling, which is exciting. We're going to get to that in a second, but let me talk about Tyler. Um, I said this last night, and I truly believe this, the fastest American cyclist ever. And I love Davis Finney. I mean, I love the guy to death. He's like my one of my favorite bicycle racers of all time. And you can't ever, you always argue this point, right? I mean, he won a lot of bicycle races. Tyler won a lot of bicycle races. But he won a, a stage in every Grand Tour and many, many stages. And he, he's, he's been part of Team Time Trial wins as well. So um, we can argue that all day long. But the bottom line is his discipline is sprinting. And sprinting takes a complete different mental state than, let's just say, time trialing. Mm -hmm. And hopefully we can ask, I can ask him the right questions to figure out what that was like because it's, it's dangerous, it's intense, it's hard to train to be a sprinter, right? Because you want to be strong enough to get over the climbs, but you want to keep your speed. And there's always a, a push-pull with that, so we'll get into that a little bit as well. But this is kind of an open discussion. I'd love for you guys to participate as much as you possibly want. I'll throw some questions out there, but the last discussion was great. Everybody just kind of chimed in whenever they felt like it. So please, any questions you have, it's a great opportunity to ask away. Let me just start with this one. Um, update since retiring. I mean, I, I gave you guys a little bit, but tell us what it's been like you retired, what year did you retire? Uh, two years ago. Two years ago. I want to hear kind of what, why that transpired and kind of what you're up to today. And you retired? Like 2007. Seven, mm -hmm. so a little bit more. Yeah, it's been longer. A little bit longer. <laughs> but stayed very active in the sport. Definitely, yeah. Talk about that. Well, um, I mean, I, I actually have been in the sport for since I was 12 years old. So cycling's just in my blood, and I love it. Um, I raced for a lot of years and when I retired I still had a passion for the sport but I I knew that my competitive career was over so um, I took a little break from being involved in the race scene the competitive competitive side but five years ago I started directing the women's short or the women's 2020 team 
And basically, I got into it because I wanted to work with juniors. And we have a junior team. And we also have an elite team. And so they needed a new director for the elite team. So I said, well, I want to be involved in, in the program then. And so basically, I took over being the director for the professional team and didn't get to spend as much time with the juniors. But it's been an amazing five years. And I think for me, it's, uh, it's taken five years for me to learn how to be a good director. And a lot of that has to do with communication and um, understanding that not everybody needs to be talked to in the same kind of way like I would be like to be talked to in a different way than Tyler would probably <laughs> because of the sprinter time trialing kind of mentality differences. But um, I learned a lot. And as Robbie said in this last race in Colorado, our team ended up winning like every stage, every jersey, and the um, the big preems that happened there, which were amazing. Um, and so it was a great way for me to go out. And now I'm going to be taking over as the national team coach for USA Cycling. And I'm super excited to be able to start figuring out our pipeline, basically, which is what I'm really interested in. And Tim was talking a bit about NICA and how do we get those kids involved more on the road and stuff. And, and that's a big interest of mine, that and the collegiate cycling. And um, I'm just excited to, to work on figuring out how do we develop the next generation of cyclists. Yeah, um, I retired two years ago as of yesterday. The uh, Canadian wow. one-day races were my last race. Uh, so, yeah, still pretty fresh. Um, basically, I was kind of out of gas in my career. Um, the writing was on the wall that whole last season. I just I love the sport. I love the tactics of the sport. I didn't have the legs anymore. Um, I was the road captain on my team the last three years, and kind of mid-season sat down with uh, with the management and said, look, part of my job is selecting the best team for the races. And if you want me to be honest and select the best riders for the race, I would almost never pick myself. <laughs> so that was a pretty good sign. It was time to, <laughs> to move on. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I hung it up in 2017. Um, and actually, it had this plan in place. Um, well, another motivator was I had my wife was pregnant. We had a little boy on the way. Um, that lined up nicely with uh, another good reason to, uh, to stop and be home a little more than a professional cyclist is. Um, but yeah, since I was a kid, I, I wanted to be a firefighter. And you know, opportunities came along uh, to be a pro. I did it and went down the cycling path and wouldn't, wouldn't trade it for anything. Give 18-year-old me the chance to do it all again, I'd, I'd sign that contract in a heartbeat. Um, but yeah, so in that last season, I kind of put things in place. Uh, put myself through school and became a firefighter. And I've been doing that for about a year and a half now. Awesome. So. Yeah. Did you, as you were starting to run out of gas, is what you said, um, was it all physical or did you feel like you were starting to lose your, your nerve a little bit? I know how important that nerve is when you're kind of going in those last two kilometers and you're going 40 miles an hour and you can't touch your brakes and a baby on the way. Did those thoughts creep into your head? Do you feel like that was part of it, or was it sheer horsepower? Uh, a little from column A, a little from column B. Yeah. Um, you know, to be honest, I probably lost my nerve to sprint even a year or two before that. Um, and I luckily had the option to transition into a role as a road captain. Uh, otherwise, I probably would have hung it up in 2015. Yeah, sprinting's a crazy aspect of the sport. It requires a complete lack of common sense and, and a, lot of, a, a lot of risk that 
you know, when you're 24, you're like, oh, yeah, let's go for it. This is the best part of the sport, like <laughs> adrenaline and, and all that. But you hit the ground hard enough a few times and reality sets in and you start to think, like, maybe I don't want to do that. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that was kind of it was a it was a great way for me to kind of transition within my career um, and then transition on out of the sport where, you know, the, the risk was fun when I still had the legs to really affect races and, and change the results. Uh, once I also didn't have the legs to do that anymore, then you start saying, well, is this risk worthwhile? You know, do I need to be bombing like 120K an hour descents in Switzerland just so I can get back in the bunch to get dropped on the next climb and finish inside the time cut and not do anything to actually help my team? Probably not. So like I say, that last year was a pretty good sign that it was time to, to move on. A lot of these um, pure sprinters, even like back in the day, they are pure sprinters, they lose a little bit of that speed and they transition to classic riders. Did you try to make that transition? Was that ever part of it? Yeah, I mean, from the beginning, the classics were a big part of my career. Um, I was lucky enough with USA Cycling to come up through their program. Uh, when I was coming through, it was based completely in Flanders. Um, now it's moved over, they have the house in Maastricht. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a little more diffuse across Europe, which is probably better um, because they get into some races that suit really American riders better than the, the Flemish classics. Uh, but when I was a kid, if you weren't good at the Flemish classics, the national team was a rough place to be. Um, and lucky enough for me, I was okay at them. So yeah, from, from straight in at you know 19 years old, I was focusing on the cobblestone races. Uh, we lived in Ghent, Belgium, my whole career, basically, uh, mostly to be in the heart of the classics. And you know, those were, even when I was a, a top sprinter, and that was actually what I was good at, the, the spring classics were my passion every year. They were my favorite races in the world. They're the races I still now get the most excited about seeing the results for and watching and, and all that. They're just insane. I'm going to brag on you a little bit, Tyler, because I asked you this question last night at dinner. <laughs> I thought of you as a sprinter and didn't know about your Palmares on, in the classics, but you said you won the Shelda Price like two, three times. And yeah, I had a good I had a good run in the spring yeah. classics. Share, I, share, share, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I won scale the price once. Uh, I was on the podium. I was second two or three times. Um, that was kind of Kittle came along, and that was the end of me winning that race. <laughs> but I was second in Dwarsdorf Landrin, third in Ghent Wevelgum, fourth in Kern Brussels Kern. Oh, third in Omelope Pit Newsblad, fifth in Flanders. Uh, oh, third in Ghent Wevelgum. So yeah, I kind of I chipped away. the The only spring classic that never really worked out for me was Perry Roubaix. It's this unique beast. Guys are either good at it or they're not. Um, for some reason, my body just couldn't couldn't handle the beating it takes. It was even at the peak of my career. You know, it kind of lights out always at 30k to go. But uh, but yeah, I just I love those races. They're they're absolutely insane. I I kind of feel like the classics just distill all the all my favorite parts of bike racing down into one single day. Um, Obviously, different people have different specialties. I was very much not a time trial specialist, very much not a, a big mountain climber. So I hated going to, you know, like, send me a tour of Basque Country, and that was like the worst week of my life. Um, <laughs> but, you know, those short, steep Flemish climbs, they're just awesome. It's all a battle for position. It's all kind of, you have to have the legs, but even more, you, you have to play the positioning game. And that was my favorite part of bike racing. So, so yeah, I, I love those races. So, Mario, when you we talked about his wind down, talk about your wind down. Like when you knew that it was time to transition from 
you know, bicycle race into the next chapter. Yeah, I mean, I think that I probably spent a couple years too long trying to decide what I wanted to do because I wasn't really sure. I loved, I loved cycling and I wanted to still be involved in it, but I don't think my heart was really in the right place anymore. And um, I think that I, I had a problem with my iliac artery. And so in 2000, or actually in 99 was the first time I started feeling problems in my left leg and, and wasn't really sure what was going on. Um, and I made it through the Olympics and 2001 was still a good year, but then it, it really started to kind of accumulate. But when I went into the doctors, they you know weren't 100% sure yet. And iliac artery surgery is a really big surgery. And back in those days, it wasn't as common as it is now. Um, so I really didn't want to do the surgery unless I, I knew 100%. And when we finally got the, you know, the information that, yes, it was 100% iliac artery uh, blockage in uh, 2004, I fixed it. And then I wanted to race a couple more years just to prove to myself that, you know, I, I could still go hard. Um, so I did that. But, it, you know, it kind of made the last few years of my career not so great and kind of not the way I wanted to go out. So it actually took me a little bit of time after I stopped racing to like really find my love of the of the sport again, essentially. I mean, I knew I loved cycling. I would, Jill was my roommate back in San Diego back then, but I would ride like, you know, 70 miles a day or I was riding a ton back then. And, um, I, I loved my bike, but I, um, I really didn't want to be involved in the competitive side of things and the racing anymore. About five years ago when I got involved with Show Air, it was, you know, them kind of believing in me and me saying, hey, I want to work with the young kids and like see what they can do because I just, I still love cycling and I want to see these girls, you know, grow up and be able to, you know, get through these challenges that happen in racing in order to be better. So I did that and it was totally the right decision because I'm definitely in a spot where I want to be now and I'm not quite spending enough time on my bike anymore but like I am like um, in a spot that I want to be in the sport and it it feels really good how much do you guys still ride um I probably ride two or three times a week like mostly five six hours a week uh I'm a mountain biker now uh we have I live outside Seattle and we have world-class trails like outside my door so yeah, I, I ride very much predominantly on the mountain bike these days. It's just fun. You know, it's, there's no, tra I don't have a training program. I, uh, I want to just go out and have fun on my bike after 15 years as a pro and another six or seven years before that, you know, like I got all the intervals out of my system. I got all the, <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't, I don't leave the house for a bike ride if it's raining. Like, I'll go do something else instead. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, no, I just have, I go out and have fun on my bike, you know, and, you can still get a crazy workout just going and ripping around. Now, today, did you get a little bit of the juices back? I mean, like... That was awesome. Yeah. yeah. That was... He had Christian's bike and cycling shorts on. Yeah. He cycling shorts anymore. He those baggy ones. Well, I can tell you, having been retired for, like, over 10 years now, I can tell you residual fitness happens for a long time, but then you get to a point where you're like, oh, my God, I actually need to spend more time on my bike. Because, <laughs> you know, it's it's one of those things that, you know, I'm, I'm doing something that I'm really excited about in cycling. And uh, 
being involved with the team and the girls has been amazing, but I feel like I've been spending more time in the car following them than I have been on my bike. I looked at my Strava, which is my training diary now. So I had like 1600 miles on my bike this year. <laughs> so I decided, you know, it's probably, you know, next year my goal is to up that mileage again and, and maybe start, you know, putting some intervals in there, but it's, it's cycling is just amazing and you can enjoy it whether you're spending a little time or a lot of time. Are you going to get the train with the women this next year? Well, I'm, I'm hoping so. I'm one of the things I really want to do is start organizing regional camps for the younger women, juniors and collegiate level athletes. And Alan Lim and I were talking a bit about it because he was involved with USA Cycling doing a, a region like a collegiate camp right before Colorado. And I think it's a great idea. And I'd like to expand on that model. And I would love to ride with them. So yes, my my hope is that I'm going to be riding more. But I also think that the idea of the e-bike is an incredible tool as a coach to be able to do because one of the things is that even if I'm riding, I'm not going to be able to be at a world tour level riding with those women, but you still have things that you can teach about how to ride certain lines or like digging deep or, you know, trying to get the most out of your athlete. And I think that the e-bikes are an amazing tool to allow a coach to be able to help their athletes in that way. I think we're going to see a lot more of these coaches. A lot more. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's just stay on the women's, the women's cycling. I mean, we've had such incredible female cyclists with so much yeah. success in our country. Kristen Armstrong, yourself, now Chloe Deigert. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about her and, and kind of what her future looks like and then the shape of women's cycling. I mean, personally, the women's bicycle races that I've been watching online and on the TV have been phenomenal. I mean, it seems like the level... The racing itself is getting better and better. What do you attribute that to, and how yeah. do we keep it rolling? Well, so Chloe is an amazing athlete. I don't know how many of you all in the room know about what she's done, but she was a junior on our team when she was 15 years old and had had some knee issues. She had been a, a basketball player, um, and her father was really into cycling. So she's gotten on our team and into cycling and she came to Junior Nationals when the national, or not national, Junior Worlds when it was in Richmond and won the time trial on the road race. And it was just, a, you know, an amazing thing to do. And then she went on, uh, got picked up by the national team on the team pursuit and ended up going and winning a silver medal in the Olympics only you know, right after that, basically. Um, so she's an amazing athlete. She won every stage at Colorado Classic. Um, we have hopes of her meddling at Worlds in the time trial. You know, I mean, I feel like she's riding at a level that's so mature that you forget that she's young, you know? So it's kind of like, you don't want to put too much pressure on her because you don't really know what can happen, but her potential is unbelievable. And she's also going to do the road race too. So it's going to be really interesting. And is she, I mean, Olympics coming up, um, um, support of her and like well she I mean she has said that she wants to do the next six Olympics <laughs> she she dreams big right <laughs> yeah, she's like a that's a yeah. <laughs> no she's she you know she wants to beat Kristen who's her coach and Kristen has three Olympic gold medals so you know how better to do that than to do the next six Olympics and you know I it's funny because when she, before the stage in Avon, which had a lot of climbing, I thought, okay, we're going to be, she needs to ride as smart as possible in this thing, conserve as much energy going up the climb so that, and never go into the red, like always ride your pace. And 
that takes a very like um, mature rider, in my opinion, if other people are attacking and going to actually stay within yourself and do what you know you're supposed to do because you're inside you want to go with them you don't want to like be left behind and she rode the perfect she rode perfect races and that takes a lot you know um and i never so so i guess what i'm saying is i never would count her out for somebody if she says she wants to do six olympics it's like i'm not gonna you know count her out for it so so we'll see and also at worlds in the road race it's a very long race and she's used to racing shorter distances and team pursuit so you know on paper you would think that it shouldn't be that she should be able to win a 150k race but you know it's chloe and i would never you know say it's not possible so did your career uh cross over with kristen armstrong's Kristen came onto my team the very last year. So when Kristen started, uh, I was on T-Mobile, which was the women's national team back in the in the day, and she she started in my last year or two of racing. Yeah. So, so you, she, you you guys didn't push each other, like. Uh, I mean, well, it was clear she was you know an amazing athlete. Yeah, from the start, and just a real I don't know how you would say hyper motivated focused. you know singularly focused kind of person. For sure. I mean, you ran into Cavendish in your career. That buzzsaw. I mean, yeah. How much fun did that be, right? I mean, his whole. I mean, basically, your whole career was battling Cav quite a bit. Yeah, I was, um, I was lucky enough to to be the exact same age as like the best sprinter of all time. Exactly. So. <laughs> talk about uh, talk about racing him and, and and the challenges that that went with that, but also highlight your career defining moment. I mean, I, I always thought it was. When you won the Tour de France stage, but maybe it's one of these classics. I'm not. All, I'm. I'm. I'm curious to see, for you, what was the most rewarding victory or, or, or performance of, of your career, and, and what it was like, kind of dealing with Cavendish all the time. Um. Yeah, dealing with Cav was just Cav's Cav. Like, he was better than all of us in his day, you know. And so you could only beat him if he screwed up, pretty much. And. Like I knew, like, all right, if I'm on great form, if I'm on my day and he makes a mistake, I can win. But, you know, like, my goal at a race, like, I go to the tour and, like, I hope I can win a stage. You know, at the, at, at the peak of his career, if Cav didn't win four or five stages, that was a, that was a bad tour for him. So, you know, like, like I say, I would, if you ever ask me, he's the greatest sprinter of all time. Um, I know Cipollini was amazing. I know Zabel was amazing. You can go further back to Abdu Japarov or, or Freddie Mertens or guys like that. But in modern cycling, what they do today, I think it's going to be a long time till someone does what he does as a pure sprinter. Um, so, yay, glad I got to race against him. <laughs> <laughs> I think I had like uh, 12 or 13 second places in Grand Tours just to Cav. Oh, so, <laughs> so, yeah. The other side of your question, what my most special win was, uh, weirdly enough, not the Tour. I never really could enjoy the Tour. It's such a just pressure cooker environment that even when you're having the best tour of your life, it's not fun while you're doing it. It's one of the least fun races you would do all year as a cyclist. It's, you know, I mean, I did it with Christian the year we won four stages and had the yellow jersey for eight days and won Team GC. I mean, it was a joke. It was like really the dream tour kind of thing. And like we were just stressed out and felt like we missed opportunities and it's like, I remember talking like a month later where you like, you go home and you reboot and it settles in. You're like, oh man, we crushed that. <laughs> but it, it doesn't feel that way at the tour while you're doing it. Um, 
I think if anything, the, the tour stage I won was more of a relief because um, I'd been winning races all everywhere else and just couldn't get a tour win for a couple years. Um, my favorite victory in my career is Vattenfall Classic, which like probably half the people in this room don't even know what race that is. Um, but it was back when I was a junior, there was the World Cup. And it was one of the World Cup stops, and it was like the Sprinters World Cup. And so to me, that always seems super cool. Is this race in Hamburg, Germany. Now I think it's called Euro Eyes Cycle Classic, or I don't know what the sponsor is now. Um, but yeah, I won that in 2009. Um, and it was kind of, I'd gone to the tour. I'd had a great tour. I'd gotten a ton of like seconds and thirds and fourths, never got the win went home, kind of rebooted, and it was three weeks later, and it was just one of those, like, magical days, you know, where, like, you can't, everything's just perfect, your mind's perfect, your body's perfect, and you can't screw up. And I only had a few days like that in my career, and that's the one that always stuck with me. Um, but I love that race. And uh, a year later, I was the reigning champion in that race, and I'd had a terrible tour. I broke my wrist uh, on, like, stage three. And instead of being smart and just stopping, I'd like fought through and made it like 10 more days before I finally gave up and quit. And my form was mediocre and my morale was less than mediocre, uh, but just super motivated and somehow managed to pull something out of my ass, I mean, for lack of a better term, and doubled up. <laughs> and you wanted and, to expect And that. won again. And wow. so. Those two, I don't know why those races stick with me, but you know, if you ask me to like visualize my, my most special victory, that's always what I would see. Those two wins. How about you, Mark? Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. Garmin wasn't really a classics team at some of those years. Um, but yeah, there's a lot that goes into lead outs and sprinting. Um, you know, cycling is such a funny sport. As you're coming up through the ranks, it's such an individual sport. And to sport people, uh, especially in this country, end up in because they like individual sports. They like the solitude. And then you turn pro, and it, all of a sudden, it's one of the most team-focused sports, I think, in the world. Um, I mean, if you're on the New York Yankees and they win the World Series, everybody gets to say they won the World Series. Like, if you're on the practice squad and your team wins the Super Bowl, you still get a Super Bowl ring. But, you know, you're on a, on a bike team and, you know, you, you've got a sprinter and you're a lead-out man and he wins six stages in the Tour. You don't get to say you won six stages in the Tour. Um, but it's just this awesome group, the guys where, you know, you have to build, it takes years to build a lead out train. The, the level of trust between the riders, there's so much decision making that happens in a split second. And that was one of the things that was really hard for me when I broke through as a sprinter was trusting other people. I knew if I just did my own thing in a sprint, I could always be top five. And, you know, if you get third place in the race, team pats you on the back, good job almost, you know, like that's a great result. And it was, it was really hard for me at first to trust the guys in front of me in a lead out to, to make the decisions and, and wait or go or go through this gap or don't go through that gap. Um, you know, and it, it's changing. It's taking more risks and losing some races, but actually winning as opposed to just kind of playing it safe and, and always getting a top five result. And I was lucky. We had a, a certain period in my, in my career at Garmin where we had 
Julian Dean, who was like just one of the best lead out men in the world in his day, um, or if not the best, um, and David Millar. Uh, and then we had the weird dream team for 2011 with Hausler and Hushovd and and yeah, we, we won some great races that way. And you know, there's not many guys who got lead outs from the reigning world champion in the yellow jersey at the tour. <laughs> Uh, but the one stage I ever did win in the tour as a sprinter was that day. And, you know, like, thanks, tour. Like, I don't know if I would have won that stage without him. So it's a, it's a unique sport in that way. Um, Leadouts are kind of crazy. And it's something you try to explain it to someone watching TV, and it's hard to really get across what's going on on a TV. It's everybody's so far in the red. Everyone's really amped up. And... The level of trust between leadout teams is is something really special, and that was one of the things I loved about being a pro cyclist was building those relationships where you really did trust those guys to the death. And I mean, sometimes it went wrong, and you lost or you crashed really bad, but you know that's part of it too. You win and lose together. One of the things that's interesting, I think, about the mentality of a sprinter is like if you've ever met Cavendish, he's got a lot of intensity to him. He's got a lot of he, He's an interesting personality. A lot of this is kind of his personality. And Cipollini, showman. Tyler, what's unusual about you is, is your mentality was really always so stoic. You never had a lot of, and I'm sure inside there was all this fire and that's what kept you kind of on the wheel when it was super dangerous and crazy. But your outward appearance was always one of complete calm. And for teammates, Christian, I mean, that must have been kind of nice to have a sprinter that was kind of calm, or wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> it was a little different on the bus than it was. Oh, what? <laughs> what? I mean, look at him now. He's calm, right? I mean, like, some of these guys are just crazy. So, I mean, is, it, is this a, just a different persona, or does that persona come out, like, in the final kilometer? Or are you unusual, or do you think you're pretty, pretty straight as it comes to a sprinter? No, I would, I would say I was probably different than the other sprinters. Um, I would say maybe that's why I wasn't as successful for as long as some of the other sprinters. I had my kind of period of like three or four years there where I won a lot of races and then I, I kind of tailed off and I think, I, I, in a weird way, maybe I didn't have that true sprinter's mentality that you need. Um, as far as the calm thing, like, you know, like the cliche, like duck on the surface of a water, like what was going on underneath the surface was, <laughs> there was some turmoil there. So, <laughs> you know, there was, there are some demons that were being worked out in bike races or on the team bus. Um, or, or, or other people's other team people. buses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was not my proudest moment in my uh, cycling career or life. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, I, I, yeah, it was a weird thing. The whole, the whole media attention, probably part of why I never liked the tour, is I was, I was never very comfortable uh, in in the spotlight, I I really actually hated it, and and so it was like just trying to project, trying to be as bland as possible on TV to just make them go away. I think. <laughs> uh, so, so the the mindset of a, of a time trial, yeah. time trialer. I mean, talk about the focus necessary there. I mean, there's you have to be as tuned in as a sprinter. It's just a little bit. Oh, I think it's totally different. <laughs> no, I mean, I one of the things like is that, like you were saying, it, they just have this different intensity level of what they can do at the end of a race and the risk they're willing to take. And and I think that 
for me, that was just something I didn't have in my personality or my makeup, that kind of risk taking and, and aggressiveness. Um, but I had a huge um, desire to, to like do the best that I can. And so um, for time trialing, that's great because you can ride yourself into a hole essentially. Like, I mean, you're, you're on the edge the whole entire time and you're hoping to finish with nothing left in the tank. So, you know, you against yourself is a completely different thing than you against like this aggressiveness that it takes to against other people. And I, I think that's a big difference for me of a sprinter versus somebody who is more of a time trialist, besides just a little bit of the genetic makeup of the fact that, you know, I don't have that kind of fast twitch muscle. <laughs> so even if I did have that aggressiveness, I wasn't going to win a field sprint. But if it was a small group of, you know, five to 10 people, there would be a chance I could do something in a finish. But um, typically, I'd have to be by myself off the front. <laughs> and no, you don't really have to worry about your teammates. Like, the trust thing is kind of out the window for a time trialer, right? Because it's basically well, on you. Well, you know, bit. it's funny when I get kind of pigeonholed into this, you just time trialed, because I actually, my best years and the ones I'm most proud of were the years that I spent on European teams. I mean, kind of the same way, working away with, you know, other people getting these big results. I was... Um, Back in those days, well, back before Tyler's day, he was a junior when I knew him. So, um, but back in my day, we had like, uh, women had actually big tours where they were two weeks long. We had uh, three or four of them a year typically. And so, you know, I really enjoyed stage racing and it was always my favorite, favorite type of racing. And I, it's unfortunate that it's kind of disappeared in the women's Peloton right now. But I think that that team aspect was really huge for me. And as a time trialist, it was a good thing. Like if it wasn't a super climbing race, I could win something like the Tour of Mallorca or like, you know, uh, Idaho. There were all these races that were within my capability of winning because I could climb well enough. I wasn't going to win like the Tour de France, even, but I was sixth in the Tour. And I did win the climbing jersey at Mallorca, and, or not Mallorca, at the Giro one year. So, I mean, it's like... Your national road race and I won national road race, yeah, one year. And I was top three several times. So I did race on the road, too. Um, but as a time trialist, my biggest, um, you know, results, Olympics-wise and stuff, were in the time trial. Yeah. Let's, let's go, go back just a second. You're going to be heading up the women's cycling program for USA mm -hmm. Cycling. Um, the future of women's cycling, we're, it's, it seems like it continues to grow steadily. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What's it going to take to keep it growing? Well, and, and I think one of the big things is the media. And so at Colorado Classic, I'm not sure how many of you all watched, but they had live coverage for the women's race. And it was unbelievable. And the fact that they've figured out how to, how to do that in a way that's affordable is really going to get the women's racing out there in front of people. And I think that's the first thing to getting more sponsors to getting more money into the teams and then hopefully, you know, increasing our race schedule. And over in Europe with the World Tour right now, it's it's a really good thing, I believe, that they're, like, going alongside a lot of the men's races because you do get more people watching and being aware of it. And so I was talking about losing the stage races. It's, it's hard that that's happening right now and that we have more one-day racing, but I think that if we can increase the sponsorship, then you bring back those stage races. They'll come, they'll come back to life. You know, but we have to definitely 
get it out in front of people more because it's interesting. We spoke about gravel with Tim and, and mm -hmm. Craig before you guys came up here. And what was interesting, I did the SBT gravel race this year and 40% of the participants were women. Yeah, I went race. up and I was like out there kind of um, doing some recon for the Colorado Classic and I got to see like the field that was out there for that race and it was unbelievable. And that was, you know, Amy taking, a, Amy Charity taking an interest and in saying, hey, we need to build on our women's field. And I think that the more participation you get and the more people that you realize, you know, get out there on their bikes, it's it's gonna help drive the, the sport. So I think I think gravel's huge here. There's so much talent on the, mm -hmm. on, in the gravel for women. How can we recruit them over to the USA Cycling Team? That's my new job. <laughs> no, I, I I really think that Nika. I went out to watch the um, the the national championships for mountain biking and our junior field and our u23 field they were really big fields for the women and and i think a huge part of that was because of nika so when i heard tim talking about um you know programs coming up like trying to work with them it makes me really excited because i got my first bike when i was in my school and we had a cycling club randomly and so i i think that that's a thing if we can get cycling as it well especially if we can take it into collegiate and get it to be an ncaa like emerging sport it would be amazing because any sport that's a collegiate or that's a ncaa sport in the u.s in the olympics is incredibly successful and as somebody i i understand that parents may not want their 15 year old on the road training because of cars or whatever. But the thing is, is if you can get these kids interested and then they continue on into collegiate and we have somewhere for them to go, we can and we can expose them to road racing and track racing. If we can get the numbers, we can really be successful because our, we, ha we have so many people in this country. You know, we have more Chloe Digerts out there, more Kristen Armstrongs. And, and the thing is we just have to get them involved in the sport. And, and so, this next year, I would really like to be able to have some some camps that are like um, not just pay to play kind of things, but actually where we're doing incentives to the kids who do well in these things like they win their NICA races or collegiate regional races. They win, you know, and we bring them in and start trying to really develop them and work on it. Alan, we're doing what we talked about. Yes. <laughs> Alan and I have been scheming. This is my last question. So you guys come up with some questions here. Tour de France sprinters this year. Um, love to get your take on what you thought of the sprints at this year's Tour de France. And will we ever see somebody? It just seems like now there's three or four really good sprinters. They're good for a few years. And then will we ever see a Cavendish-esque dominance or, or, or doesn't the Tour de France, the teams, the, the, everybody's so good now, allow for that? Never say never. Um, out of the current batch, no. The, the current generation of sprinters and cycling is crazy. I would say I can't come up with another generation that had this depth of sprinting talent, um, which is really weird to me because most of the races are trying to get rid of sprints. It's like, wait, you have the best generation of sprinters you've ever had, and you're going to have the least number of sprints possible in your race that makes sense like i mean I, when i was a sprinter we'd go to the vuelta and we'd have 10 field sprints out of 21 stages and now they have four or five um so that's it's a weird decision uh but those sprints are awesome i mean the the quality of the teams the quality of the lead out trains uh are incredible and and yeah it's i think it's hard for someone to dominate 
on the same level that Cav did because, you know, it was kind of like in his day there was Cav and then there was like four of us maybe who could beat him if, if he made a mistake. And then there was not really many other guys who really had the legs to win. Um, I mean, you go to a, a Tour de France field sprint now and there's really like seven, eight guys who absolutely could win that stage. With good I mean, teams. With good with yeah. good support and lead out trains. So it's sprinting's awesome right now. It's as good as it gets if you're a fan of field sprinting. Um, Who do you like? Who's your favorite couple? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, you know, Viviani's been pretty dominant in my opinion this year. I know Bennett's won more, and I kind of I'm a fan of Bennett because I like him as a guy. He's such a just like just genuinely kind of straightforward good guy. Um, you know, I think he, if he was on any other team, would get a lot more hype than he does on Bora, um, just because it's the Sagan effect. Um, I think I could be wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure he's won more races this year than anybody else. Um, yeah, he's a freak. Uh, Gaviria? You know, Gaviria is interesting to me. I think he's one of those, his engine's too big for his chassis. Uh, that guy spent more time hurt than he spent healthy. I'm not saying he's not going to win amazing races in his career. He's going to win classics. He's going to win. He's going to win Grand Tour stages, but I think he's going to miss big chunks of a lot of seasons. Um, his body just so far doesn't seem to hold up to the stresses of racing modern pro cycling at the World Tour level. Uh, but yeah, like I say, I, honestly, like my favorite guy to watch, who I kind of weirdly root for, is Bennett a lot. I like him, but I think that's more because I like him as a person. What happened to Kittle? What happened to Kittle is what I think you're going to see happen to more and more guys. I think when I was coming up, you know, like as a junior, you just did what was kind of fun. I trained. I absolutely trained. But, but it wasn't the level of professionalism and training as that juniors are doing now. Um, I mean, there are 16-year-old kids training the same way World Tour riders are training now. And I think that's part of why you're seeing just guys are getting better and better and better. But I think it's unsustainable across a 15-year career for a lot of guys. Not everybody. There are absolutely guys who will go go to their 38 like they always have been. But, uh, but you know, I think a guy like Kittle, like, from the outside, I mean, I know Marcel a little bit. I don't know Marcel a lot. But I, I think that's what it was, is the level of sacrifice that guys are making at 16 is a level that guys weren't making until they were 21 or 22 and hit the, back then, the Pro Tour, now the World Tour. Um, I think just... You know, you've got so many like you got you got so many tickets in your pocket, and once you once you spend them all, you're done. And I think Marcel just you know he was ran out of tickets. And and sprinting's a weird game because if you're a GC rider and you go and you get second in a really big race, that's still a great result. Uh, if you're you know if, if, in every other aspect of the sport, podium places are given a lot of credence. Uh, if you're Marcel Kittle, every time he got second or worse in a race, he had to give multiple interviews at every finish line about why he failed. And that was something that when I kind of stopped winning uh, field sprints a lot was really hard for me so I can put myself in his shoes easily. Where, I mean, someone goes and gets second place in the Tour de France, no one's really making them give interviews about why they suck. But if you're Marcel Kittle and you get five second places in the Tour de France, you probably gave a hundred interviews in three weeks about why you're not good. And that's tough. That's yeah. super tough as a sprinter, as, as a person. So um, I think those two, like that, personally for myself, I had to guess, I think that would be a big factor. 
But I, I do also think you're going to see guys' careers maybe get a little shorter just because the, the level of professionalism of juniors now makes what we were doing when I was coming up seem silly to me. Um, so I could be completely wrong on that, and they could race just as long as always. Uh, but that would be my hunch. You know, I think you just only have so much in the tank. Everyone's already said we have a massive talent pool in the U.S. And I think this the, the thing for USA Cycling is we have a lot of sports and activities that pull our talent pool off in other directions. You know, there's a lot of people who could be world-class cyclists, but they become track and field athletes, they become basketball players, they become something else. So anything you can do to get cycling in the forefront, expose people to it, let them realize, wow, I'm actually really good at this, it's awesome. So yeah, whatever it takes. But. I completely agree, and it's one of the things I want to look into more about using Zwift and online as a recruiting kind of tool, because I think that because our country is so big and we have such numbers, you know, we can have people in random spots, you know, getting exposed to our sport and we can actually see real time data of what they're doing. And so I think that uh, I think it's an incredible like recruiting tool to hopefully find new talent. So I'm just starting with USA Cycling. So I'm, I'm looking in right now to what they've been doing and who they've been talking to. But it's something that I absolutely think is important to follow up on. And I, you know, you know, there's kind of this fine line because one of the great things about NICA is the fact that you have these athletes who are coming through who actually have skills on their bikes. And that, you know, being able to handle your bike and not being afraid is something you learn when you're younger. You know, it's much easier to learn skills when you're, you're young and not be afraid of how your bike moves or what if you touch someone's wheel or this kind of stuff. It's much different. So I think that you combine that with some of the Zwift stuff, like maybe you take the top 10 kids in NICA or, or even put it out there and then have you can see their numbers and then say, okay, we're going to take people with this, you know, these watts per kilo, et cetera, to a camp and see what they can do. I think that you can combine the two things or combine it as a recruiting tool. I mean, absolutely, it would be great. I think that with the Zwift, you actually have more people who are already, they've already invested in a bike. With Peloton, the Peloton bikes, I think that, you know, it's going to take a little more to get them to make that change. But I, but if you can, like, create events where they would be wanting to go do these, and we can grow cycling and get more people on real bikes outside, e-bikes, regular bikes, whatever, I think it's only going to help our sport, for sure. It's actually the same answer to both. Uh, I think it's the Twitter effect. Like, sprint stages are super boring on TV. Like, they make for terrible TV. Like, I feel bad for Christian when he has to commentate a dead flat sprint stage. It's like four hours of dead space. Like watching the Cubs on a Thursday afternoon. Yeah, yeah they're terrible. Um, you have to be a true cycling fan, in my opinion. I, I shouldn't say that, because that's not fair. Uh, you have to really appreciate the diet, what's going on behind the scenes of, of a lot of that to appreciate a sprint stage. and. And like castles. And like castles <laughs> or, or sunflower fields. Um, but no, so they, I, I, I totally accept they make for really boring TV. Like the, those last 10 minutes are awesome, but they got a long broadcast to fill. And I think, you know, people get bored with it. And now that everyone has a voice, they express that boredom and, and people respond. Um, my argument would be that if you gave, like those are rest days for a lot of guys in the Peloton, those sprint stages. And if you gave guys a chance to recharge their batteries more, I think the, the hard days would be more dynamic, personally. 
uh, instead of just these wars of attrition that is what we see and then Sky wins every Tour de France from now until forever because they have the algorithm. I think if you gave guys more time to freshen back up, they'd be more explosive when they get when given the opportunity. But that's that's my two cents. That's worth nothing. <laughs> but but um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's that. And then why are the the finishes super dangerous? Uh, I think because it's dramatic. Um, again, it is the same answer. It's the Twitter effect. And you know, why do people go to NASCAR races to watch the crashes? And you know, like there's these massive like race-altering crashes that happen in the first week of the tour sometimes make for great press and they make for, for drama within the race in a, what's otherwise a somewhat boring period as, as far as talking about the GC and, and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, it, it is what it is and, and you definitely want to give the fans what they want to see. And I think the fans right now really don't want to watch guys just kind of ride tempo for four hours every day. I don't either. It's, it's a great way to take a nap. Um, but. But yeah, you know, like, like I say, my, my one argument, and I'm totally jaded because I was a sprinter, is that I do think on a whole the racing would get more exciting if you put more sprint stages back in the race. Technical finishes are safer than straight finishes, weirdly yeah. enough. Um, straight finishes are where you have the biggest crashes, the speeds are higher, and guys can come from behind and you get these big blobs. Technical finishes are great. Um, what happens with some of the traffic furniture sometimes, what they do with some of the fencing sometimes, I really disagree with. But you add a bunch of corners into the last 5K, that's awesome. And okay, maybe there are some crashes in those corners, but crashing is part of the sport and they're not, they're dudes who are gonna lose some skin. You know, like it actually, technical finishes are slower, the crashes are less severe, they string the field out, they make it actually safer for the sprinters. Making guys go over traffic islands at 200 meters to go or cross tram lines, that's a different story and I'll like fight you to the death on that that shouldn't be in bike racing. But you know, it's kind of it's two different things. The GoPro uh, cameras on the back of the during that total chaos is it's pretty telling. You see that as a non sprinter, you're like, oh wow. Yeah, it's funny, I again being who I am, I hated it when they first showed up on bikes, and they make some of the best video of like the whole Tour de France. So like, good job, GoPro. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Blackberry Podcast. Continue following the journey wherever you subscribe. Thank you to our guests, interviewers, and audience dive into more stories, videos, photos, and podcast episodes on blackberryfarm.com and blackberrymountain.com. Make a great day.